Hey, y'all. This is Tom Maxwell, producer and editor of the Progressive Bitcoiner podcast. I wanted to start with an editor's note for a couple of reasons. One, you'll hear a drop in audio quality, ironically, when I'm discussing my music background, as I had to use the Zoom recorded audio for that section. And two, I realized after recording that I neglected to define libertarian socialism, which seems like a big oversight as I identify as a libertarian socialist or an anarchist, and in this episode we discuss the importance of definitions. I define libertarian socialism as a political and economic system intended to maximize human freedom by overcoming the domination, repression, and alienation that block the free flow of human creativity, thought, and action through the administration of all by all. I believe that Bitcoin can and will play a key role in the transition to and development of that system. Thank you all for listening. I really hope you enjoy this special episode of the Progressive Bitcoiner. Welcome to the Progressive Bitcoiner podcast, where we explore the intersection of Bitcoin and progressive issues. I'm your host, Mark Stefani. Tom Maxwell, welcome to your own podcast, the Progressive Bitcoiner Podcast. Welcome. This is a little bit uh, different format here. We had to reschedule a few things, and I thought, who can I get on the podcast in a last-minute situation? And I thought, why not my own audio guy? Uh, You have a lot of great insight on Bitcoin and life in general, and it seemed like the perfect situation to, to do so, and I'm actually quite honored to be to have this time with you chatting about Bitcoin because we haven't done it before uh, to this extent. And so I'm excited to see where our conversation goes. We've sent each other a few questions in advance to get the content off and running, but I'm excited to, to, to know where things head. Yeah, for sure. No, this is, uh, this is a lot of fun. And, um, you know, I'm glad to actually kind of get my voice out there for kind of, you know, helping other people get their voices out there for some time here. So um, it's, it's kind of exciting to uh, be able to kind of give, you know, to talk to everybody out and listening to the podcast. Thank you all so much for listening um, up to this point and, and for engaging with us. And, you know, to me, this is a really important project to me because I think, you know, it's, the, you know, while we're starting to see sort of a, 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 a you know, a rising of, of progressive voices in this space, um, I feel like that's, you know, just, it's really different than it was a year ago. And uh, to, you know, to kind of, un, you know, start this process and, and this project and to try to, you know, kind of pull those people out from, you know, their shell and all of that, I think, um, I think we've done some of that. I've seen the engagement on Twitter and I've seen the people when people talk about the podcast and and um you know I'm really I'm really honored and and glad to have people enjoy it so much and and um you know so thank you all for listening uh and uh thank you Mark for you know for wanting to start this this awesome ride and um this really important project and I'm just so glad we're doing it so um, yeah, happy to happy to be here talking about uh, Bitcoin and and life and everything. Yeah, thank you for saying that, Tom. I it, admittedly, I feel like I'm in the point of the podcast. It's you started in December, um, but I'm feeling a little down uh, about it. Maybe it's a bear market speak, but um, in the, in the rationale is, I think in, in part, 
being pulled in other directions in my life, in part because uh, you're hoping for even more engagement than what you're already getting, uh, in part because like other forms of content in, in this space, oftentimes you don't uh, get that affirmation that you need to to keep going. But then when you do get it, uh, it certainly makes you feel uh, a hell of a lot better. It makes you feel like you're doing the right thing. It makes you feel like uh, you're committed to a project that's making a difference in, in people's lives. Uh, and I just have to remind myself of that, um, that this is it's not about the affirmation. Ultimately, it's not about uh, any potential sponsorships. It's about putting out content that people care about and for a cause that we believe in. Um, and even if that means that we can't do as many episodes as we hope for, uh, I think it'll still be worth it. And so uh, echoing Tom, uh, thank you so much for, for everybody for listening and sharing our episodes, offering suggestions, offering feedback, leaving reviews. It means a great deal to us. Uh, this was started on a whim and um, we, we're incredibly proud uh, with that, we're, uh, that we're still at the stage that we are right now. So thanks again. Yeah, if I could, if I could just jump in and add a little bit to that, I think, you know, part of why I think it's important is not just the instant engagement, but that like, you know, when somebody, I feel like, you know, every day is a new opportunity or, or a, somebody might come in and discover Bitcoin tomorrow, right? Tomorrow might be the day when they are like, you know, what, what's this all about? I've been, you know, I, I, I hear it's this sort of right wing sort of thing. I don't really like to be associated with that type of thing, but maybe, but I started to see some people maybe talk about it in this way, or maybe it's not as bad as I've heard it is. And then they find 34 episodes of this podcast. Right. And they can go, oh my gosh, yes, I can binge this and listen to all these episodes all in a row. Cause I do that with stuff all the time where I'm like, I discover something and I'm like, there's a hundred episodes. This is amazing. And so I think that is, you know, it's, it's really good to have that just available for people as, you know, sort of a, a, a you know, to help them on their journey when they're starting and all of that. Um, so I think it's, you know, super important that we've, you know, no matter what happens going forward, honestly, like I'm not, you know, in the best possible way, like the fact that we've done it and have that available for people, I think is, you know, is super important. And I'm, I'm really glad it's out there. Absolutely. All right. Well, a little bit of background on the two of us. We have some, uh, before we get to Bitcoin, we wanted to uh, ask each other a few questions um, out of curiosity about uh, each other. And we all know, uh, those of us who follow Tom on social media, on Twitter, that he's an incredibly talented musician in addition to audio engineer, uh, both in his vocals and his guitar and I'm sure other instruments. Uh, and I'm always curious when somebody has as strong as of a passion, let alone talent for something, what drives them and what that talent and passion means to that individual, um, how it shapes their lives. Um, how it allows you, Tom, to relate to the world. So if you could tell us about how music uh, does that for you, we'd be grateful. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, first thing is I started playing guitar when I was 13 years old, and I'm 32 now. So I've been playing for the majority of my life. And that's, it's been, you know, it's only been the last couple of years where it hasn't been like my total identity. Uh, music really i mean as soon as i you know when i was 13 years old i discovered led zeppelin and wanted to be jimmy page and 
Um, that kind of got me going on my guitar, you know, journey. And where it kind of led me is how I kind of get into a bunch of different stuff gotten into, which is I start, I, I learn about something that seems interesting. And then I wonder, like, what's the background of this? How did it, how did it get to this point? Right. And so how, what, it, who was Led Zeppelin listening to? And they listened to the blues genre. And when I got into the blues genre, I, I had found it. I had figured out what I was going to do with my whole life. And uh, was there a particular artist? Yeah. I mean, the artist really that like grabbed me the most of everybody was Stevie Ray Vaughan. I, I, I just recently introduced my daughter to Stevie Ray Vaughan and uh, playing the um, Slight Return uh, song for her. Yeah. And she calls it the monkey song because <laughs> the, the beginning when he's doing the, I, I'm not going to even attempt to recreate it, but you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, the wah-wah pedal. Yeah. Uh, to her, it sounds like a monkey howling. Sure. <laughs> and, and so we're, we're jamming uh, Slight Return, uh, or Voodoo Child's Slight Return on yeah. um, on the way to school. I love it. I nice. was super proud. <laughs> I remember where I was. I remember I was, I was coming home uh, from school, actually, and my mom had just gotten um, uh, uh, XM radio in the car, and they had the Bluesville station. And we had... I we had put on you know i was like let's put on bluesville and she was like okay great and uh i remember there's like a you know my parents still live with where they they've lived for the last uh geez like 20 years now um and we we're coming around this corner and the song pride and joy came on and i was like what is this right like this is awesome and uh and so that really kind of put me on the steve ray vaughn path and um I, I just really appreciate like his intensity and also how he, uh, Eric Clapton as an example today, especially like he's been like this for, for his whole life, but he's just sort of a racist, right? He's just not that really great of a guy in the end, which is really unfortunate. Um, and he was part of that kind of contingent of people like Led Zeppelin is included in that who just like, just openly like took things from the blues community right like they took songs they took stuff and they just didn't credit them um steve ray vaughn he was always somebody the first person to say like i didn't write this it was this guy these people are the best you need to listen to them like you think my version's good wait till you hear the original and you know buddy guy has a, a who's a blues guitarist he has a a kind of a, a famous anecdote where he's like he had heard about c ray vaughn he didn't really he was like, okay another white guy playing blues and then he went out to his mailbox and he had a check from bmi or ascap or whatever because steve vaughn had cut buddy guy's songs and that record came out and they sold really well he was like i love this guy right he credited me and now i get to do well also so he was really embraced by the kind of old school blues community um, and so that led me to go out and start doing, uh, the local blues jams around here. There's a couple of places that hosted like weekly blues jams and I would get up and play my three songs with, you know, they, but the way it works is you walk in, there's a list of people, you write your name down, you write what instrument you play, if you sing or not. And then the person who runs the jam puts a band together and then whoever's singing gets to choose the songs, right? And they say, we're doing a you know, shuffle in the key of A and it, you know, does this. And then we count it off and we go and everybody gets to take a solo and all that. 
Um, and so I got to know the guy who ran the jams and he wanted to hire me to kind of do like regular gigs. So I did bar gigs with him um, and other people in the area for about five years. Uh, that was my full-time job. And then I, as during that time, I, I got really into writing and trying to understand music production. And that led me to record my, I did, I recorded an album. I wrote and recorded an, a full-length album um, that nobody really needs to go and listen to. Um, it's, uh, you know, they say if you don't cringe at what you did a few years ago, then like you're not, you know, progressing fast enough. And so I'm progressing plenty fast. <laughs> um, but uh, no, it was really, it was a good experience. And, um, you know, but it really was like, okay, I need to go somewhere where I can write songs. And I don't really, you know, performing is fun and I really enjoy it, but I don't need to be a performer. I'd rather be a writer. And so I moved to Nashville in 2015. Uh, let me pause for a second and just say background. I'm from the Washington, D.C. area, which is actually where I am right now. So Nashville is about a 10-hour drive southwest of here. Um, so I moved to Nashville in 2015, and I started writing songs. And I drove Uber, and I uh, coached some swim lessons. I, I grew up as a swimmer. So I kind of, you know, did some some odd jobs. And um, and while I was trying to write, you know, write during the day and or write at night and go out and hang out with people at night and make connections and all that. Um, and I got to work with some great friends and we got to make records. And um, so I got to do exactly what I came down, came down there to do. And then I was offered some, some of those friends uh, had a, a mutual connection and uh, she was looking for a new guitarist for her band. And they were like, Tom can play guitar. And so I got a call and uh, I didn't really want to be a touring musician. I'd never been in a dream of mine, but uh, it was an opportunity to um, kind of do, you know, take first off, get to know people at a slightly higher level up in the kind of world, you know, and also have some, maybe some good experiences. So I took the, I, you know, accepted the gig and I tried out and I got the gig and I played with Maggie Rose is the artist. She was uh, um, like fully into like, you know, modern country at the time. At this point, she's kind of kind of migrated more towards like Americana, rock and soul, sort of like funky kind of stuff. Um, but I played with Maggie for three years and I got to play all over the world. I've been to Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. I've been to the Middle East. I've been to the Caribbean, Europe. Um, We've opened for Tim McGraw and Faith Hill, Kelly Clarkson. Um, we did a bunch of dates with Martina McBride, who's the sweetest person. And so I got to like experience a lot of cool stuff and play on some really big stages. Um, and uh, yeah, it was a fantastic experience and I wouldn't change anything about it. I'm going to interrupt you, Tom. Yeah, please. Traveling the world, the, to the extent that you did, obviously in the in the manner that you did uh, is limiting to some extent, but what did you take away from that? And now in, in hindsight, reflecting on, on that experience, not necessarily from a musical sense, but um, what did you, what did you learn from it from a worldview uh, or, or personal? Yeah. I mean, uh, from a personal, you know, kind of uh, side, I got to kind of see a lot of different places and, and, you know, kind of get uh, some, you know, I, I had never left the United States before I started playing with Maggie and 
um, you know, the best way to put it is like, we basically traveled in like the not cushy way, but like sort of, you know, like we got to kind of see that more of that side of things. So I always wanted to go and see like the actual places as they were, but we didn't really have a chance to do that most of the time. Um, you know, a lot of places, like I feel kind of bad because, you know, having, you know, I've been to a lot of places, but I've driven through most places really, you know, we, we drew, we drove in, we went to the venue, we set up, we checked, we maybe walked down the street and got something to eat, or there was food at the venue for us. We played, we loaded out, and then we drove away. So occasionally we'd have a day off in a place or something like that. Um, and I always wanted to kind of see, you know, what it was really like to live in those places. But um, the main thing is that like, there's obviously really unique architecture in places and, and all of that. But one of my main takeaway was that like, we are all like much more, have much more in common than we do have differences. Um, so I always tried to like figure out what the differences were and, and there, you know, it also kind of like sort of flies by. You're, we're only there for like a short period of time. I mean, we went to the Middle East. We didn't, we went, we went, landed at the airport, which was unbelievable airport. Doha airport is crazy. Um, we drove right to the base. We were at the base for like 30 hours, 36 hours tops. And then we went back to the airport and we left. Wow. So there's like not, you know, we didn't get to go around and see other bunch of stuff or like really experiencing that. Like I just kind of interacted with the soldiers mostly, you know, it's central command for the air force in the middle east so also a uh, fun uh, anecdote for everybody listening uh when we took the stage at uh, at Aludid air force base it was 124 degrees it was outside and i made it to the very end of the show and on the last song 15 30 seconds left in the song I turned around, I walked to the back of the stage, and I threw up on the stage. <laughs> I didn't want the service members to see me throw up, so I tried to get away from them. But there's great pictures of, like, just Maggie and our, our manager, Austin, who's also a drummer, so he was playing drums with us. And they're, like, taking a bow at the end of the show, and then I'm facing the other direction, like, <laughs> leaned over. <laughs> so, uh, fun experiences. Um, but, yeah, just, it's... Um, we have a lot more in common than we have different. Does music, how does music shape how you see the world? Does it, has it shifted, do you think, uh, through the lens of, of music and composition? I guess the best thing, I mean, the thing it's taught me the most, I guess, more than anything in terms of composition-wise, is that if you hear a jingle in a commercial, like Nationwide is on your side, like, you hear that once, maybe twice, like you'll, you're never going to forget it, right? It's just like so well done. And that's what pop music really is when it, at its core, right? It's, it's just like so well done. What these people have done is use the exact right number of notes and the exact right words in the right order in this small span of time to grab people and then have them never forget what happened. It's, you know, fantastic to have a a 15-minute movement, you know, in the symphony. But at the core of that is this little four-note hook 
that gets you, right? That they keep coming back to and referencing so that it pulls you back in and resets you on the music. So like the act of, you know, having concise information repeated in a specific, you know, allotment of time uh, is an extremely effective way to get people to latch onto something. Interesting. I like that. Uh, that's a really incredible history uh, with your travels and everything. That's, that's, that's remarkable. Yeah, it's cool. I got to do a lot of stuff and I, you know, so w- walking away from music uh, at the end of 2019, I just, for all of 2019, I was like, fascism is happening in America right now and I'm not doing anything about it. Right. And climate change is destroying habitable life on earth and I'm not doing anything about it at all. I don't have any expertise in it. I don't have anything really maybe to add to the conversation, but like everybody should be working on this in my opinion. So I should be working on it. And I just felt like, you know, it was unfair to me and to the band to sort of like have my, you know, half halfway in, halfway out sort of mentality. And so I wanted to leave and, and do something different. And that's what I did. So I w- went and I ultimately got a job. I wanted to work in progressive politics and I got a job with the Mike Bloomberg campaign for president, not super progressive really in the end. Um, but I'm grateful for the experience and, uh, it definitely taught me like one thing that taught me was super important is I Basically, it doesn't matter how much money you give me. If I don't really believe in what's going on, I can't really do it. So it's good to know. Right. Integrity. Hopefully. Well, is it my turn? Yeah, it's your turn. Um, yeah, so my I have I had a few you know questions I wanted to ask you. And the first one is, how has your medical practice shaped your overall worldview? You're a doctor and you obviously, uh, you know, you have all kinds of experiences that probably vary greatly and, and, and there's a great range in what people kind of, you know, you don't know what's coming necessarily when you show up to work and, and how has that kind of shaped your overall worldview in, in terms of people and, and the way you interact with society? I'm faced with death nearly every day uh, at work. I'm a hospital medicine physician, which means I only work in the hospital. So it's um, the one that I work at is higher acuity. And so we see a lot of uh, trauma and uh, acute illnesses that, that crosses the spectrum of, of of type of pathology. But, you know, in my 10th year of my career now, and, and like I said, I see people in the dying process uh, who are, you know, days, weeks, or dying in front of me um, nearly every day of the weeks that I work. And so that cumulative effect over time has most certainly changed my worldview as well as um, how I handle my day-to-day life and my, my own outlook on life. There are these commonalities that I've come to discern uh, through this whole experience. Commonalities in that stage of life, in that dying process. Wow, we really went from like jovial fun, 
rock and roll to <laughs> macabre death. <laughs> it it's all part of life. So, yeah, you know. exactly. So I apologize if I'm bringing everybody down. Um, but that's, that's what I see. That's what I deal with. And, um, but I, I see these commonalities and I see the commonalities, uh, twofold. One that has always fascinated me is that there's this homogeneity in death in the physicality of it. The, all the physical identifiers that, that, that vary amongst our appearances, looking at you right now, a portion of those fade away. And in death, there's this, this, these common features that are obviously all anatomically uh, justified. But to, but to me, it was something special that what differentiates us in life is somehow brought back together uh, in, in death, in this common feature, this common, this, this, this human commonality. Um, and it's, it's in the eyes, it's in the face, it's in the, the sunken cheeks, uh, the, the expression, the absence thereof in our eyes when we're dead. But it's comforting to me. It has become comforting to me as I have recognized that commonality. But in addition, in that process and in the days and weeks that somebody is um, expecting to die or knowing that they're going to die, there are certain things that are focused on. And in my experience, that's been dignity, relief of suffering, and connection to loved ones. The first two, dignity and relief of suffering, um, are in, in large part what I'm responsible for as a physician to make sure that the dying process is as dignified a process as it can be. And for each person, that's different. Um, for many people, that's not being hooked up to uh, machines, uh, IVs, monitors, things like that, uh, or it's being at home uh, or, you know, certain things with, with bathing or changing, you know, things like that. Relief of suffering is obviously intuitive. People don't want to be in pain. Uh, and that is both, uh, you know, expressed by family and by the loved ones. And it's almost every time that the, the, the family says, I do not want mom, I do not want dad to be in pain uh, during this process. And I try to reassure them as much as I can that that's, that's my job in all of this is try to relieve suffering. Um, and then it's connection to, to loved ones. Right. And again, that's a very intuitive and, and simple thing that that we want at that time in our lives. But what happens is those ridiculous arguments or hang ups, the pride that you carried in your life towards that loved one or vice versa, almost inevitably melts away. And you recognize the inevitability of what's about to happen to your loved one. And there's almost an immediate reconciliation. And you can always tell the family member who has suffered the most in that sense. It's always, it's always the, the son or daughter from California. It's always the son or daughter from California flying in to try to save mom or dad at the last minute because they have to assuage their guilt. Not kidding. <laughs> it happens yeah. more often than you would expect. And all the other siblings are saying, 
you know, it's time for mom, dad to go. But then this other sibling says no. Inevitably, there's a backstory with fights, complications throughout life. And so what I'm trying to tell you is to get your shit together now and recognize that that fight is not worth it. This isn't about forgiveness. This is not about necessarily anything going beyond what asking of you then just to to to, to move on and and to you know, if you care about the again the relief of suffering indignity of your loved one in that moment setting aside that disagreement that story is a is a means by which you can allow for those things to have your loved one be more dignified suffer less because obviously there's that emotional component because that dying person obviously is living that backstory as well how had those elements changed my worldview i constantly think about how do we optimize systems for dignity relief of suffering and optimizing our connections to loved ones i i don't have obviously an answer to that but when when we're bickering on twitter about this that or the other ism I always come back to those questions. I'm like, what is it about um, libertarian socialism or conservatism, communism, et cetera, that you believe will allow for those characteristics, in my opinion, that are um, some of the most, if not the most important things that are in our lives? How does it optimize for those? Again, that's an open-ended question, but that's I, I feel like it's that base layer, that 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 foundation of, I guess, in essence, uh, uh, Maslow's hierarchy, that we 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 need to allow for in order to optimize those things. Um, just I guess thinking off the top of my head right now, like those aren't foundational in in Maslow's hierarchy. Um, you need the other ones first: food, shelter, etc. And I think that's where Bitcoin comes in is because that foundation is very much an economic one in how can we expect people to have those things that they deserve, that they need in the end of life when they're still trying to piece together those foundational layers. So that's, how, that's what shapes my worldview. And it's, it's very much in the clouds. Maybe it's too idealistic. I don't know. But it's, it's one of those things that, I, I, that, it's, that, that frames everything I think about. It certainly has lent itself to both an urgency to plan for the future, as well as a resetting of my own needs and expectations with regard to life, like the the seeking out of uh, the more the material elements of life. In addition to um, try, doing working harder to to not only do those things at work, but carry it outside of work. Um, to to help people who are suffering um, and just very very simple things. <laughs> I think back, you know, twenty odd years ago, Oprah's you know, random act, acts of kindness. I I never forgotten about that. Uh, to me, it, it speaks volumes. And God, the other day, um, driving in traffic, and some guy lets me in. Right? <laughs> yeah. I'm just, I'm just like. You're a, an amazing human, man. Thank you so much. <laughs> I don't know if that speaks to, again, my worldview or or where we are in, in, in history, but I was just like, little things like that, just like, thank you. Thank you. That 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 means such a great deal. And and so I, you try to pay that forward. So, Tom, that's, that's how the medical practice has, has shaped my overall uh, worldview. Yeah. I hope it's for the better. 
I love that. I mean, it's, you know, it must be so difficult to have to, you know, see people sort of at what must be their lowest point, you know, a lot of the time, but, you know, taking from that, you know, that's, I think is, is, you know, really comes down to like what, you know, do no harm. Right. And by, you know, trying to alleviate suffering and, and help people kind of, you know, help people, you know, help shepherd people kind of through that. I think that's, you know, that is a, a absolutely a fantastic way to look at life in general. I think that's, you know, I really agree with that for sure. I think, you know, there are all kinds of ways that, uh, you know, as, you know, whatever society means to each person is probably a little bit different. But if society is just the sum of all human interactions, then, you know, the ways that society could do a lot more to help alleviate suffering and, and, and spread kindness. And, you know, like it would just be, and then, you know, those things it's to me is an exponential thing, right? Where like, if that's the way that people are, then if that's the, the incentives are to be kind, to alleviate suffering, to increase, you know, dignity in life everywhere we go, then it would build upon itself and it would be a total transformation of the way that we interact with one another. Yes, you, you touched on something there that um, it will dovetail well for my next question to you. But what it, what it gets at is we can better identify what dignity or its absence is in addition to what suffering is much better than we can define the more positive uh, elements of life, you know, such as freedom. Sure. My next question coming up for you is going to relate to that. What one person's freedom is uh, may not be the other person's uh, sentiment. You know, what I'm willing to give up in a freedom uh, is perfectly fine by me, but it may not be for you. Much harder to define than it is. I see you're in pain. I That is quite easily identifiable um, and much, I think, easier than to to manage to treat than than some of these more positive attributes. So, yeah. My next question for you, Tom, um, comes from a, a tweet that I put out today. That comes from itself, a recent clip from the um, What Bitcoin Did podcast with um, Peter McCormick interviewing Robert Breedlove and talking about freedom um, and taxation and slavery and uh, Robert Breedlove. Uh, equated taxation to slavery. My tweet was, if taxes are slavery and only taking to Twitter and podcasts are your reaction to enslavement, perhaps it's worth questioning what you believe slavery to be, or at the very least, what you're willing to do to fight against it. Now apply that to Bitcoin. You should be mining your values already, but are you willing to protest, to march, to be not be anonymous, write letters to reps, quit your fiat job, spend your sats to fight for Bitcoin? My question to you, Tom, what would you be willing to give up to ensure that Bitcoin, the protocol, survives? What freedoms may would you value now that you would be willing to give up uh, in order for Bitcoin to survive? Yeah, so let me, let me that's an excellent question. And I, I, you know, I watched that clip as well. And um, I have some, some thoughts about that specifically. But let me start by saying this, is that like, I know... And I think about it just constantly and I have plans to, and I don't do nearly enough to actually like live my values. And so 
in the last couple, the last way, the last year or so, especially last year and a half, I probably the best way to describe it is I went from being sort of on the left to being like way, 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 way on the left. The reason I phrase it that way is because uh, there's a thing in in anarchism called means ends alignment, and means ends alignment is if the end goal is A, I should do everything that is going to get me to A that is in line with what A represents. If my goal is to have a totally decentralized, bottom-up society where people have free association and work together, I can't impose that from the top down. That is not means-ends aligned. So uh, it has to be this way where we build it up, right? And so uh, in terms of like what what would I give up or what would I, you know, be willing to do to, you know, uh, support uh, Bitcoin adoption or to kind of rally on, you know, under the banner of Bitcoin. Like I said, I should be doing a lot more, but what I'd like to do is, you know, sort of what we're doing now to a certain extent, which is getting the information out there from people who have a, a similar worldview and see the world in the, you know, to your point, just you made it just a few minutes ago, you know, in a way that what we should be doing as society or as people is trying to increase the dignity of life for as many people as possible. And not just for a handful of people or just for me, because saying, you know, I want poverty to go away. I want, you know, a, a quality of life to be accessible to everybody. But the way I'm going to do that is to just focus on me alone and get there. I don't think that's a means ends alignment in my opinion. So I think you have to go out and you have to bring that to people and educate them on what's going on, encourage them to take a similar view and say, the more people we engage, the more people we bring in and try to work with as in cooperation, not just in a way that we're going to compete and whoever wins is the winner, then I think we'll get to a better position as a society as a whole or as people, uh, as humans. And so, you know, I think there's, you know, a lot of stuff that I think Bitcoiners as a group really agree on. I think one of the main things that Bitcoiners really agree on, like a vast majority of Bitcoiners, is that we consume too much as people. Uh, as kind of a rule, uh, you know, our consumption consumerist society is not good for a number of reasons. There may be, you know, maybe some people over here think it's, you know, on the left or more like it's destroying the environment and, you know, the eco ecological viewpoint is all wrong. On the right, it's that like you're making choices that are actually like lowering your quality of life when if we lived a simpler life and, and actually just kind of, you know, didn't spend all of our money instantly, then we'd actually have a lot higher quality of life across the board. I think those things are both true. And I think they actually go hand in hand, right? They, they go together. If you didn't spend as much, then you wouldn't, wouldn't need to produce as much. And therefore, we would have a more ecological, uh, you know, positive sort of, you know, uh, approach to the, to the way we interact with the planet. And if that, you know, means that we're not spending our money frivolously, then that's all good, 
right? Those things go together. So again, there's like so much we have in common. I really think that like when it comes down to it, probably like 90% of people have a lot in common and probably have very similar kind of goals uh, that if they were to align their goals together, they could we could accomplish so much. Um, I think we're driven apart by all kinds of wedge issues that are, it's like these people are not good or like, uh, you know, these people are causing the problem. Well, they're just living their lives. If you mean that like a small number of people are causing a problem, that's true. It's like the cantillionaire class, right? That writes all the, all the, all the laws and they change them kind of as they want to for their own benefit. Um, you know, we're not directly intimately involved in the democratic process in the same way that we could be if we reorganized the way that we do things. I think that's something that ultimately a lot of people probably feel that they don't have a lot of power and they wish they had more power over their own life. And I think that they should have that. So, um, you know, I think there's a lot more we could be doing. I don't know at this point, I've kind of come to the, like I said, I've kind of moved, you know, to the left. And when I, you know, the conclusion I've come to is that big pro, like just protests, like, you know, going and marching in the streets, just saying we're here to just march and then we're going to leave. It's not really going to accomplish anything in the end. It just isn't. Um, it feels good in the moment, but ultimately, I'm just going to say the capitalist class, right? Because that's how I kind of think of it. They let you do that and they have no problem with it. If they have no problem with it whatsoever, really, it's not going to do anything. Right. Right. It's just, it's, it's temporary. It's a temporary headache. It's uh, blocking traffic and uh, it'll pass. Yeah. Right. Whereas if there were, you know, real direct action by people that challenged the way that the world actually operates, then we would have a lot more power. Um, we had um, uh, Marissa on the podcast a few weeks ago, and she has a line that I've thought about almost every day since I, you know, heard the audio and I was, I was editing the recording. And that's, you know, people, you know, Democrats or Republicans, whatever, say vote with your wallet. Right. And so, you know, if you don't like what this corporation is doing, then you should shop somewhere else. And she said, I want to vote with my wallet, but against fiat money. Right. I want to choose a different monetary system. That's my protest. That's my direct action. That is me choosing a different system than the one that's been just kind of presented to me and one that I don't agree with. And I really believe that. I think Bitcoin is this revolutionary tool, in my opinion. The most powerful tool of capitalism today is fiat money because it can be generated at will. It really is generated from the top down and it's permissioned, it's gatekept. If you already have a lot of money, you have more power. Hey, that sounds like proof of stake sort of, right? If you don't have a lot of money, you don't really have that much power in terms of the way that you can influence the economy and politics and all kinds of different stuff. So, you know, if we had a different system where wealth didn't equal power and control, it where anybody can participate, it's sort of a worldwide anarchist proof of concept. My kind of hot take that I'm trying to slowly put out in the world is that like Bitcoin has a lot of, is much more socialist than it is capitalist. And I think a lot of people don't want to hear that. They think that it's capitalism and it's this, you know, it's this chance to kind of restart capitalism, but capitalism is proof of stake. And every day 
Bitcoiners are on. You can't be shitcoining. You know, we shouldn't be using altcoins. They're just a big casino. Yeah, I totally agree. You know, a lot of people went off, you know, I'm specific, but a lot of people went after Natalie Brunel for having that course, right? For doing the $850, you know, learning Bitcoin course. She's just doing capitalism. Why are you mad at her for doing capitalism if you love capitalism so much? Mm-hmm. I don't like it because I think it goes against what people should be doing, perhaps. So, but it's really interesting that people recoil at socialism, right? And I think that's, you know, with, with having, you know, Ben DeWall was just on what Bitcoin did and talking about libertarian socialism. And that was a lot of the comments I saw was like, oh, these things, that doesn't make any sense. Well, it does make sense if you understand what the term actually means and that like, you know, it was co-opted by these groups that tried to use it for their own advantage and then tainted it for everybody for years to come. And you see that in a lot of anarchist writings at the time. They're like, this is, you know, the Bolsheviks are the worst. They've taken this term that means this and they made it mean something different and it's going to ruin it for a lot of people. And that's, I think, what's happened. Yeah. You said a lot there to unpack. I did, Sorry, I did yes. Um, but it, what, no, don't apologize. I am. Um, what do you make of that? And by that, I mean, you have people who say, well, it's not real socialism, but we, you know, this is what it means. Uh, and how it's been implemented is not the real one. Uh, this isn't how communism was was designed. This is not how capitalism is supposed to to work. It's crony capitalism. Right. I try to think about, well, what's, why is that? Why are, why are we getting all these examples of, this is what it's supposed to be on paper, and this is how it is actually being implemented. Yeah. What do you, would you agree? What do you make of that? Yeah. So I think the main thing is this, is like, if you look at the, uh, you know, I'm going, and Ben did the same thing. I'm going back to, I'm reading, I'm, what I'm doing a lot is I'm reading people from, you know, like Pierre Joseph Perdon is a great example. He was the first person in uh, major work to call himself an anarchist. And his philosophy is called mutualism, which is basically market anarchism. So a lot of, you know, like communism, for example, is not a market system. It's a moneyless society. Um, I don't expect to convince a lot of, commu- of like through and through communists that Bitcoin is a great idea. I just don't expect to do that. But if you think that markets have a place, if you think that Bitcoin could be even a transitional technology towards a different way of living by curtailing state and capitalist power and being able to redirect it and put it in the hands of people, that's the thing, right? It's like what socialism really means, the definition of socialism as I understand it, is it's administration of everything by everyone. Therefore, if you have a small group of people who say, we are going to administer everything for everyone, that isn't socialism. That's just statism again, right? So like the idea of state socialism is actually sort of oxymoronic because you have this exclusive group that has power and they use it to advance their own ends, right? That's bad. I'll be the first one to say like, If you, you know, if when you say, I think socialism is terrible and you're talking about Leninism or Stalinism, I couldn't agree with you more. This is a terrible concept, right? You just took, instead of having capitalism where anybody can start a business, you made it so that no one can start a business except for this guy, 
right? That is inherently awful and it leads to terrible conditions. Nobody can actually fight for better conditions because they're supposed to all be part of, they're already there, right? But they're not there. They don't have any power. And strong central government in that situation is antithetical to socialism because it's supposed to be administration by all of the people. So there should be a lot more local administration, community administration of things. But this is the problem with having any kind of discussion is you start off by saying, I think capitalism is bad. And they're like, well, you think trading things is bad? I'm like, no, I think that's a really good thing. That's not what I'm talking about, right? And so now we have to have the whole two-hour discussion about what's the definition of capitalism? What's the definition of this thing? And, you know, of socialism, of whatever. But that's, you know, it always kind of devolves into that, which is really unfortunate. I would just, I mean, I obviously, I wish there was one agreed upon definition of something of, of capitalism or socialism, whatever, but that's not how it works. And so it ends up kind of devolving to that a lot. And it just takes, it just takes people saying, you know what, I need to learn more about this. Just like we're trying to get people to learn more about Bitcoin, right? We're trying to convince people that it's a really good idea to spend time learning about this technology. And we can only tell them so much. Right. Somebody telling you about it, even for if you went and sat a six hour lecture about it, that's not even close to enough time to really understand what's going on with it. Right. You have to actually go through the process yourself. And that is the self-empowerment part. Mm-hmm. Right. Is it encourages people, I think, to do that. Right. To take it upon themselves to do that. Right. To not just have it dictated down to them, but to take it upon themselves to understand what's going on, just like you would have to do if you lived in a more directly democratic society where your vote on something is really important because it's going to affect your life right now. And also the way that people in the Bitcoin space like are so cooperative and they help each other out. People all the time, they're like, how can I help? Or, you know, direct me towards, you know, I'll direct you towards resources. Uh, some people will get on a call with you, like, just just to do it, just to help out, right? That's like solidarity, right? That's mutual aid. These are socialist sort of backbone principles when it comes down to it. So if it were fully, if it were everybody was a capitalist all the time and everything, somebody would say, can, can you help me out? And they'd be like, no, you can pay me money and I'll help you out, right? People don't do that. In fact, when somebody did do that, People pounced on her. Right. They were like, don't do that. You just get the information's there. Just direct people towards the information. It's just available. Yeah, that's great. That's mutual aid, right? You're just helping other people out to help them out, not because you're going to profit from it, right? Maybe you can think of it as the price will go up and therefore they'll profit. But the price goes up for everybody, right? It isn't just that they're profiting. Just like when people mine Bitcoin, right? They're not mining it just to protect themselves. They can think of it that way, but that's not functionally how it's actually working. Right. Right. They're actually securing the whole network for everyone. They're processing everyone's transactions and they're rewarded by everyone for doing that. So I wish people weren't so afraid of the idea of what socialism actually is, because if it just means rules without rulers and administration by the people, isn't that what Bitcoin sort of is in the end? That's kind of why I've really kind of been kind of drawn to drawn to it so much is because I think it really actually is a proof of concept of that really working. Blasphemy, Tom. Blasphemy. I know. Blasphemy. All right. Am I up? Yes, you're up. 
once again, another long-winded answer from me. Obviously, I, I'm i more comfortable usually on the editing side of this and because what happens is I, you know, someone's like, what do you think about this? And I'm like, here's my entire life story about this. Um, <laughs> all right. So this is kind of an, a similar, uh, you know, line that we were just talking about. There may be multiple beliefs that learning about Bitcoin has challenged in you. What's the biggest or most consequential belief that you no longer hold or now hold or has been most transformed by understanding and researching Bitcoin? This is such a good one. And I, I think I've mentioned on, on other podcasts um, that earlier in my life, I think it was around 9-11. Um, and you obviously saw a lot of discussions about uh, religion how it's influencing the world, uh, a lot of uh, disinformation about uh, the Muslim faith, the Nation of Islam. Yeah. And I wanted to better understand the world in that sense. What, all these, if this was going to be such a contentious issue, and clearly it has been historically for millennia, I should better understand that. And so I just read as, as much as I could um, about it, about the three primarily um, monotheistic faiths. And then the same thing applied later on in my life uh, in understanding race, racism, and, and so forth. I wanted to understand the topics that seemed to be driving a lot of the problems in society. And finally, that came to money. Um, and it was, it was coming back to the coming back to Bitcoin after the ubiquitous uh, crypto uh, soiree and trying to better understand uh, Bitcoin, I, had to, I told myself that I had to, needed to better understand money. And what an incredibly fascinating thing to study. Yeah. Uh, I, I never took any economics uh, or financing in college. And so it was a whole new to world to better understand, but the historical context uh, uh, surrounding money is so fascinating and would encourage anybody, everybody rather, to to learn more about it, regardless of whether you find it Bitcoin intriguing. But going through that process and then going through the better understanding Bitcoin rabbit hole and, and, and previously just re solidified the fact that I have less certainty about any given complicated topic or complex issue for that matter um, than I did prior to Bitcoin. And there's humility that um, is a component of that. There is a reluctance to give up my righteousness and my ego that I had hung on to because Bitcoin touches on so many different facets of study and life that you you quickly recognize that how how could you hang on to um, how did I hang on to belief systems that I felt to be so certain, so true? Um, previously, you know, if whatever, you know, whatever the democratic party says, that must be it. And that must be good. And that must, <laughs> that will, that will yeah. have the intended effects that they said it would. Right. Bl blind faith like that. Right. Yeah. But what B Bitcoin does again is allow you to see that ultimately, in, in my opinion, comes down to this understanding of, of complexity and laws of unintended consequences that, I need to be honest with the fact that the world and the economy is incredibly complex. And righteousness does a disservice 
to the causes and values that I hold dear. That if I am to actually seek, let alone obtain the ends that I seek, dignity, relief of suffering, connection to loved ones, and more foundational things of uh, food and shelter and health, I cannot hang on to prior ideologies that may have unintended consequences negatively to the very people that I am trying to help. And there's certainly a plethora of, of left-leaning laws and, and policies that have done those very things, right? So I needed to give that up uh, in order to do the very things that I, that I said that, that I wanted to. Um, and it's not only the study of Bitcoin's, uh, in the study of money and how Bitcoin works that, that gets you to that, but it's also how, how the protocol itself, Bitcoin, was designed and the trade-offs of, of, of how it was designed, why Satoshi did certain things, why he chose pr proof of work over proof of stake, choices like that. And, and in almost putting them in col columns and in, in better understanding, well, why did he do this? Well, it was because of this. These are the unintended consequences that would have happened had you chosen proof of stake or had you made the block size bigger, had you um, X, Y, or Z. It, it's studying those trade-offs that um, became, I think, my, more eye-opening to me because when you go to the ballot box, you don't think about that stuff. And it is never discussed in open debates um, that often where, you know, if we implement something, you know, what are going to be the unintended consequences? You don't get that discussion. You rarely even get a discussion of how certain are we that it's going to obtain the ends that we want. And so I, I see Bitcoin much more transparent in that manner. Everything is the same information presented to the billionaires, presented to uh, a person in poverty. The same rights granted to the, the billionaire through Bitcoin are granted to the um, person in poverty. To me, that is a very refreshing way to look at life uh, in, in politics. And so the belief system that I no longer hold is a belief system of, I know what's right. And I'm going to a belief system that believes one segment of the population, a particular political party knows what's right for my values. What I've come to understand, and someone has had a conversation with on, on DMs was, I feel pretty damn boring these days when it comes to my political identity. You know, tell me what the issue is and then what hopes, goals we are trying to uh, obtain from that issue. And then let's look at all the v vast possibilities for how we get there, right? Yeah. While examining potential side effects, unintended consequences. And if that solution ends up being a free market, if that solution ends up being more of a small ground up grassroots initiative, that if that ends up being more of a uh, government funded project, if it's the best, and again, best uh, does have a bit of a gray area, so be it. You know, label it what you want. If it if it if it gets uh, the goals that we are after, that's what I'm that's what I'm for. That's that's fantastic. I think that's you know I've sort of you know have had a similar kind of transformation in, in that way to a certain extent where I think it, Bitcoin just does that, right? Where it, it sort of strips away some of these preconceptions about how things are supposed to work, how things have always worked, just like any revolutionary force does. In, in addition to the fact that it's not how things have always worked, you know, yeah. uh, fiat money, 
being off of the gold standard, like that's eye-opening for many, many people. Like they just assume what has been has always been, you know, and, and, and clearly when you recognize how many different iterations of monies we've been through, through the centuries, through the millennia, you're like, well, it's really kind of only natural that there's an evolution to this process and we're living through that right now. So it's important to pay attention. For sure. I think also like Bitcoin is kind of singularly, you know, in terms of money, like, like you were saying, looking at the history of money and all of that, you know, even on, on, you know, a gold standard, if you will, like it wasn't that there was this much gold in the treasury and then someone was like, nope, got to stop. Right. Like they, well, we had to spend a little more, you know, and then we'll spend a little more over here. And then these people, you know, it's fine. We'll just, we'll all work it out. Right. Bitcoin, like you actually can't do that right it's like programmatically keeps you from making that possible in terms of the actual base layer of the protocol and so it's a much better accounting system it's a much more secure system than you know the gold standard ever was or ever could have hoped to be and so i think in that way it's like it's you know Obviously, it's a combination of technologies kind of put together into one sort of synthesis of things. That's also another, you know, uh, argument for synthesis is important, not just purific, you know, purely this, right? Purification is not necessarily as as good as synthesis, right? Synthesis usually has you get different strengths and weaknesses. You're able to work, work some of those weaknesses out and you come together and make something better than it ever could have been just individually. But I think that it kind of, it takes it, you know, the administration of money to a totally different place than it's ever been. And it makes it accessible, more accessible than it's ever been. And, you know, it just, there's so many positive things about it. And it really, it just gets down to the root of things, right? It just, it just shows you, you know, what's possible and if you really want it to be. Exactly. All right, Tom, your last question. Who is your dream guest for the podcast and why? My dream guest overall, I would say, well, I mean, you know, there's a lot of intelligent Bitcoiners out there. Um, just in this very moment right now, my dream guest would be Ben DeWall. He works, uh, he works with Swan and, uh, he just was interviewed by Peter McCormack on what Bitcoin did. And, uh, his episode was called Bitcoin and Libertarian Socialism. And I would love to give Ben more of an opportunity to kind of explain exactly what that is so that people can understand it and really elucidate on, on how it, you know, is a really a powerful economic system, uh, how that actually is how you achieve maximum freedom. Um, because I think that is the goal here is maximum freedom means that as many people as possible have the freedom to choose what's right for them in their life. So I think Ben DeWall would be great. Um, uh, Lola Leitz, who's uh, on, in her Twitter bio, it says uh, accidental crypto anarchist, which I really like. Yeah, I'd like to have her on the show too. Yeah, uh, Lola's fantastic. Um, I like she doesn't really take a lot of crap. She just kind of says it like it is. And she's also a very, you know, libertarian-minded uh, person who wants, you know, people to be free to make their own decisions and, yeah, I think one of one of those two people would be an excellent guest uh, here in the near future if we can we can talk to them and get that going. All right, there you go. Open invitations, but I think I'll be reaching out. Yes. All right. 
my last question for you. Do you think that we'll see Bitcoin on par with or overtaking the U.S. dollar as a worldwide means of exchange in your lifetime? Yes. And the reason is it's not going away, one. Two, I think you have to look at what's going on behind the scenes. Uh, people who aren't in into Bitcoin uh, only see the headlines, and that's more often than not just gloom and doom. But if you if you look at all the mining uh, infrastructure that's going in, uh, the hardware solutions that are going into it, it's it's really hard to imagine a world where uh, it becomes this small niche market. Um, and, and that's just the United States. When you, I think of the top 20 uh, countries for crypto, not just Bitcoin uh, adoption, 15 of the, of the 20 uh, are not uh, G20 yeah. nations, if, if, if I recall correctly. And, and so the mantle is already being picked up by these other countries. And I foresee that that will continue, especially in Africa. And, and so this thing, Bitcoin, is not going away. And I forget where it is in, in uh, total market cap uh, for other cur currencies. I think it's at least top 10, 12, 13 uh, at this point. And I know there's debate about whether or not that's relevant. But I think it is one of the uh, relevant components to acknowledging whether or not it's going to head in that direction. And seeing that market cap move up higher and higher, yes, I do believe it will. And what I expect we'll see is ever-increasing adoption in these smaller countries, kind of overtaking their dominant currency, all the and being used more as a medium of exchange there uh, in addition to store of value. But I think the medium mix if exchange component will be more important uh, for more quote-unquote underdeveloped countries. Whereas in the United States and the EU, I really think Bitcoin is going to be solidified more from the ener energy side. That it's going to be perhaps, maybe we'll see in the next few years an ETF and it'll become a little bit more of a niche 1-2% in, in the majority of people's portfolios. But I think it, I think it really uh, gets its claws into the G20, the other G20 countries, through the energy side of Bitcoin, and that is Bitcoin mining. And and from there, um, it'll be ubiquitous uh, within the next twenty years. Um, so, assuming I've got fifty, hopefully, years left in my life, uh, yes, I, I think it's definitely going to be a top five currency medium of exchange. Yeah. Uh, at, at, at the minimum. And does it ever replace fiat? I don't know. I, you know, I think that's, that's a much harder bet to, to place, but it makes me think of, of whether or not, you know, one of the, the, the critiques that's um, put toward Bitcoin is, is based upon that assumption that all of a sudden it becomes the law of the land and everybody is using Bitcoin as store value medium and a medium of exchange, and therefore this disflationary currency um, has X, Y, and Z problems. First of all, I think that leap is is really problematic because uh, a whole hell of a lot can happen between now and then. Yeah. Uh, and it assumes a lot as well. But it also assumes that things couldn't change. Uh, and now we're going down a whole other uh, rabbit hole. Yeah. 
But when people make that claim, to me, it says, well, we, we are choosing to then live in a world where this disinflationary currency is a bad thing and we're just going to live with it. Um, whereas if we know, if we have consensus, something could potentially change. In, in hypothetically, I think that's an interesting scenario to play out. Do we, do we get to a world where disinflationary currency is hurting more people than it is helping? And if so, is there something that we can do about it? I don't know. Yeah, it's fun to to speculate on that. But yes, to answer your question, I certainly do think that it will be right up there. It's not going away. Yeah, I I like this question. I mean, I, I wrote the question, but I like it a lot because and actually, if, I, if you don't mind, I have a couple of comments on this. I think are are important to this. Uh, I just wanted to add for everybody. Um, I think so. There's something I, I know it's, it occurs in other ways of structuring as well, but in, in studying um, anarchism and libertarian socialism, a thing called prefiguration. In prefiguration, what you do is you're basically building something alongside of the current system so that when it comes time to topple or, or you know, dissolve the current system, you have something right there ready to go. That's a Jeff Booth um, well, he speaks to something very similar, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's really building dual power, right? You're building right. another kind of thing over here. And then you're saying, you're just saying, hey, come do this, right? You're saying opt into this thing instead. And then as people realize that it's superior to the current system, they'll reject the current system and it'll actually weaken the system right. over time as people come into it. Uh, this new system will be able to replace the old system right. and you won't have a bunch of downtime or saying, you know, we got rid of this. Now what do we do? Right. Right. That's how you, that's how it really goes wrong is when you have somebody come in and say, we're just going to get rid of this thing with no plans. Right. That right. is right. not right. good. So I think Bitcoin is, is prefiguring a world where first off, like you just said, you know, when we are, you know, Jeff Booth actually says this as well, right? It's don't measure Stop trying to measure or recreate, you know, a system within the system you're already in, right? Uh, you have to think outside of that system altogether to build a better system. Otherwise, you're just going to try to basically recreate parts of the system as it exists, and it will never— Listen up, Democrats. Exactly. And it will never really supersede the system as it was. You'll just recreate it in a different image, mm -hmm. and it won't, be, it won't be the revolutionary thing you think it is. Right. And so Bitcoin is an opportunity to— say this thing is already here right like we already have this other system uh it's a chance to build a, it's it, we're building it right now it's being built right it's 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 happening now and so you know uh looking down the road and you say okay well if it you know but if it works if, if everything else worked the same way then this one really won't work well okay then everything else doesn't shouldn't work the same way right we have to change multiple things and so i think that kind of that saying fix the money fix the world I think it's heavily flawed and it doesn't take into account all kinds of different stuff. But at its core, I understand the sentiment of the problem is when everything is, you know, what everything is exchanged with money as the currency to do so. And things are built on the monetary system and the financial system controls all this infrastructure and stuff. Like, yeah, if you change, if you fundamentally change the way money works, then you do change the way the world works. And this is an opportunity to do that. And it's not something, it's not theoretical, right? It's happening as we're speaking right now. People are building on Bitcoin. People are, you know, building off the Lightning Network and allowing people to trade, to exchange value instantly all the way across the world. So 
um, you know, it's happening now. And I think, you know, it's, it's a really powerful thing. And it's just about educating people and, and getting them to understand that we are building something better and come and build it with us now, you know? That's your call to action. Yeah. Come and build it with us. Excellent. Well, Tom, we did it. Yes. That was a hell of a, hell of a lot of fun. Yeah. I hope people enjoyed it. Any final thoughts? Uh, no, just once again, uh, just want to say thank you to all the listeners who have, who have been with us for, you know, the first 34 episodes of this show. And um, I hope you uh, appreciate some of my ramblings today. Obviously, I've gotten very intent on trying to help people understand that we shouldn't be afraid of certain terms because they've been misdefined for us in the past. Uh, we should be open to rethinking the way that we just like we when we you know start to learn about bitcoin and we start to question some of the things that we've been taught our whole lives about how certain things work or have always worked when it isn't really true like you were saying mark hopefully people can expand that to other things and say well maybe i don't fully understand this or i should understand this better and i would like to do that all the time if there's something i don't understand i want to understand it better so that i know exactly how it works and that that way, if it's something I don't think is the right thing, I know why it's not the right thing. And I don't just sort of think it's bad, right? Like, why don't I like it? Well, because it does this and this and this, and it functions like this. So in order to do something different, we have to do it like this, or we can do it like this or this or this. You come up with options, you understand what's going on with it. And, you know, I'm able to, I'm better able to articulate my worldview and, and help other people maybe do the same. So. You know, that's kind of where I'm at. Perfect. Thanks, Tom. Again, thank you so much for everybody who's listening. We greatly appreciate it. And with that, we will see you uh, on our next episode. Thanks again for listening. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Progressive Bitcoiner. If you enjoyed the show, head on over to Apple Podcasts and please leave a review. And don't forget, we have a website, theprogressivebitcoiner.com, where we have a lot of great content on Bitcoin and progressive issues. Thanks again for tuning in. 